nobody, so it's up to me. No. Yes, Sarah? Uh-huh. It's just to say, I really have a lot of trouble understanding, not Swami, but he was explaining about the, uh, forget the one of the main guys. What page are you on? Uh, it's, it's chapter seven. Yes, but what page? What page are you on? It's uh, 52 and 53. Okay. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think. I, I uh-huh. Think I well, he's also answering it, assuming that you already knew it. I mean, he's answering, he's sort of every, not everybody. I mean, I've only heard of it, but many people have heard of the thesis, antithesis, synthesis, and, and more than that, that Hegel takes it, that Marx... Um, took it. I mean, I don't. I know exactly what's written here. I don't know more than that. I remember studying it a long, long time ago, but it interested me so little I forgot that that Marx then went and said, "Well, the ultimate thesis antithesis." You're a more educated man, Steve. You might know this that that it was capitalism and communism, and then it was resolved forever. I mean, capitalism and the oppressed labor classes, and they were resolved forever. That's correct, isn't it? dialectical materialism. I remember people throwing that around when I was a freshman in college. That was the last time I heard anybody say it until I read this book. It's one of those things twofold. Swami's answering it for two reasons. One is that a lot of people, not you and me apparently, but people do think about it. And secondly, such thoughts influence people subconsciously in our culture because they're part of the fabric of the air that we breathe. And whether we're actually thinking about them or not, they we... we what he's really dealing with here, which is extremely important, is this thought that if you do something different, you're against something that exists. That was like the premise of this chapter is to get people to understand that merely because you do something different doesn't mean that you're not that, that you're rejecting. I was remembering when I first started reading this chapter a number of years ago, um, quite a long time ago, before we came here, uh, I was lecturing in Houston, Texas, or Dallas, and it was a small group medium-sized group, and this one man came in who I found out later was, uh, I think we were sponsored by the Unity Church or something like that. This man came in who later I found out was a well-known heckler. He was just kind of like the kind of person that any public speaker kind of rolls their eyes when he comes into their class because they know that somehow he's going to make trouble. And so um, when I opened it up to questions, I don't know what my subject was, but I think it was something introductory. Perhaps it was even about Ananda. But in some context, I explained my own background, that I had been raised Jewish and that I was now doing this. And um, He raised his hand, and he sort of, in a very, very accusatory way, you know, essentially, how dare you reject your own tradition and embrace this foreign way of doing things? And, you know, um, I was reflecting in reading this whole chapter that, that what, something has begun to set in in my own consciousness that has never set in in Swami's consciousness, which is Swami never lost track of what other people think, whereas the great danger of living among people who are surrounded like you is that you forget um, that not everyone thinks like you, and it's the beginning of your mind shutting down and becoming quite insular. In fact, just to shift a little bit, for many years, Swamiji talked about the fact that at some point... He wanted to leave Ananda and live somewhere else. Not because he wanted to reject Ananda, 
But he felt that as long as he stayed living within the heart of Ananda, he would never be able to think broadly enough, that the environment would just keep him in the thought form of what was around him. So when the opportunity came, he, he often talked about moving to Carmel um, or just someplace by the ocean, just to be freer, mentally freer. And so when the opportunity came to Italy, um, he seized it for many reasons, also because uh, he, he had thought that Master wanted him to go there, and he knew there was a lot of a great work to do in, in Europe, and that he's the only direct disciple in the, on the whole continent. And he knew that establishing Ananda in Europe was extremely important and that his presence would make all the difference, which of course it has. Um, but also he went because he wanted to not get trapped in the thought form of what he'd already accomplished and also of the uh, congeniality and uniformity of Ananda. Now that's not to say, and it's very important to say, that it's not that all of us need to say, oh, we have to go out and um, you know, hone our toughen up in uncongenial environments because he wasn't looking for an uncongenial environment at all. He was merely looking for a very neutral environment so that his, his mind could expand. And of course, some of the really extraordinary writing he's done, all of it is extraordinary, but it's been especially so really since he moved to Italy because it accomplished exactly what he wanted, which is it just freed him from any predisposition. And so in this book you see also he's just very, he's very capable of just putting his mind right into realities um, that are not in front of us all the time. That's one of the reasons I had trouble with this class for a couple of weeks there is because I just wasn't able myself to just take it seriously enough. And so that's what he's working with here. But, but coming all the way back to Houston, when this man accused me of rejecting, and he, you know, he, that was automatically in his mind uh, a, a, a negative thing to do, to have rejected, which... I, I don't necessarily accept anyway, and Swami also emphasizes in here, what's so bad about rejecting something that isn't worthwhile? As he says, even a lemming should have the sense to say, hey, why are we all you know, going over this cliff, or whatever the lemmings do? It's not really a mark of wisdom to just go with the other lemmings. But uh, to him, I, just, I thought for a moment, and there was just something wrong with his accusation. And I said, I haven't rejected anything. I've just taken what I was, and I've expanded on it. But he was, it was the epitome of what Swami is approaching here, which is that if you're not doing something, you must have rejected it. And so Swami is just trying to say that things don't sort of come together and create necessarily a new alternative. I mean, you don't eliminate one or something like that. It's just everything. It says it's action, reaction, and then you just go on again. You have a new reality that uh, comes out of that. Everything's always working in a flow. And, and re- realities just progress. And the, um, the picture that he starts with in this chapter is this sort of false picture of what it means to be independent, which is to be completely unconnected to other people's realities. And, and there's a, a certain, as he puts it, this like stereotyped American ideal, which is that in the name of my independence, I'm going to somehow act as if I'm unconnected. And he, that's where he starts this chapter, and he ends it with no man is an island. But we, we are all also strongly influenced because we are Americans, and because we kind of like that picture. I see it in a lot of people, and I see it also in myself, that we're just, um, we have a false idea of what it means to be independent. 
And so he's working in this chapter many different sort of the ops. The what he's what he's trying to do throughout this book is um, raise up everything, every objection that people could make to forming communities, and then give people intelligent, well thought out, um, expansive answers to what their objections might be. So right now he's hitting just the the very simple thought that people don't want to feel that they've dropped out, that they've become irresponsible, um, that they're rejecting something, you know, that they're not doing their share, whatever all those different thoughts are, all the ways in which we feel bound to sort of stay with the norm instead of having the creativity and the interest and the ability to go out and do something new. So he starts with that, you know, caricature of the man who was so independent that he just thumbed his nose at everything that was going on and he was only the only thing you could call him was just rude and the way Swami put it sort of behind that independence was the uh, the dark mask of pride and pride is not independence in the sense that um, what real independence is is independence from wrong influences and the freedom to be influenced by right things because all of us, no matter what we do, are going to be influenced by something. And often when we're trying to persuade people for the need for attunement and what real discipleship is all about, and there's this, I want to go directly to God, I don't want to have to go through anyone, which are, are real thoughts, even though I sort of put them out like that. They're real thoughts, they're real questions to be asked. But the point is, something is going to influence us. You know, we're not wholly original. We're all human beings and we all live in in this reality. But independence is independence to do the right thing. Independence to follow our conscience. Independence to, uh, we don't want to be independent of what's good. We just want to become independent of what's bad. And if our independence, if if our freedom to follow what's good coincides with what a lot of other people are doing, that doesn't mean that we're not independent. It just means that we're thinking and acting according to uh, what we feel is the right thing. So he he sort of wants to um, uh, get us thinking about all these implications. I can't tell you how many times people think about independence in the wrong way and how much it misleads us. And a lot of times that so-called independence is actually on a certain level of fear of commitment. Or it can be a fear of a fear to trust our own perceptions of things, like a lack of trust that we have the capacity to perceive what's right. So we remain independent because we don't want to remain committed because we're afraid of making a mistake. And then we justify it with all these other points of view, but what it really comes down to when you unravel it is fear, which is a very interesting, and often it's not fear of Ananda, or I'm to use this example, or fear of the guru, or fear of the teachings, it's fear of trusting oneself and really having the courage to just stand behind what you think is true, either because you know you're right or because you don't mind making mistakes. One of the most interesting um, stories of Swami's life, of course, is the whole long story of what he did in India to get thrown out of SRF and the, the founding of the ashram and all of that and the, all the net result, all of you know it or If you don't, you can go read A Place Called Ananda because it's a fascinating story. And in A Place Called Ananda, when he finally wrote it out, he includes this little piece of the puzzle. But that book is only a few years old, so for for several decades, Swami would tell this story over and over again about 
how he, he was going to make put a master's work on the map in India, how he got Nehru's permission to build in the green belt, just this tremendous effort that he made for a long, long time to accomplish the impossible, to get permission to, for uh, SRF to build an ashram right in the heart of New Delhi. I mean, it was an amazing thing that he accomplished. And then there was a huge misunderstanding between himself and the SRF board of directors. They didn't want the project to go through, and it ended up in his being expelled from SRF. Quite a drama. I've heard it many times. After 20 years or so of telling the story, 25 maybe, Swami answered, added a small piece, which he also put in the book, which is when he started out doing that project, he did not really feel intuitive guidance from Master that he ought to do it. He didn't feel that he shouldn't, but nor did he feel the sort of the usual sense of Master's stamp of approval inwardly. Okay, that's a piece of it. But then he said, So, I thought I would experiment and see what happened if I committed myself to something without feeling that sense of intuitive approval. He said, not because I wanted to go against Master, but simply because I didn't feel guidance to do anything else. And this seemed like a good idea, so I'd try it. Now, there's many levels of interest in that, but the not the least of which is, quite simply, what courage. What incredible courage. Because he said, at least then I'll find out what will happen. And of course, he found out what happened, and it happened in a big way. You know, his whole life was turned completely upside down by that. Now, you can think about it from many angles, but it's just that little tiny piece of it that's so interesting to me. Let's find out. This fearless willingness to commit oneself to the experiment because let's find out. The willingness to trust either that I know I'm right and therefore I'm going to do it, or to trust who cares, let's just find out because the purpose of our life is to learn. Recently I was looking at some notes and Swami talked about the Mahasamadhi event they did, I guess it was last year was the first time, in uh, Assisi, where they rented the big hotel and had all these people come. They did this huge event. And um, they, they put it together in a very short period of time. It was just this intuition that Swami had. And afterwards he remarked, he said, you know, it, on one level it seemed like a big risk to do that because they, they guaranteed the hotel and all the things they were renting with money they really didn't have. And it was very late, and they had no guarantee that people would come or anything, and it was a, could have been a disaster. But he said very simply, but I just knew it wouldn't be, because there's a certain feeling that I have, and when I have that feeling, I know it's going to be, everything's going to come out right. And of course, it was a huge success financially and in every other way. But that's the, indep- the true independence of spirit. And in, in order to have that kind of independence, you have to have courage and trust in yourself that if I feel this, I'm willing to go forward. Or trust in yourself that if this goes badly, I can still face it. I'm just going to be able to do it. I will do what I think is right, come what may. And then you have to add to that, when the consequences come to you, you don't try to blame someone else. You don't turn around and say, it was their fault, and it was their fault, and they did this to me, and there ought to be a law. And then, as we were talking about last week, you go to the government and you try to get them to make it different, and you make all these new laws, and... I mean, the things that are happening in our country at this point, we were talking last night in a, our satsang group about the, the balance between security and liberty. 
and how in our country, what's happened to our country is that we've chosen security, 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 and we have no freedom anymore. But we were also talking about the fact that that's the choice the devotee has to make too. Is it like, am I really going to go for divine freedom or am I going to hedge my bets with a little bit of security? I remember many years ago a woman friend who was uh, really nervous about money, just really nervous about money. And she kept wanting to, to experiment enough to find out if she could trust God, but she always wanted to not really do the experiment. She always wanted to make sure that she was protecting herself financially. And it was like, you really can't do it both ways. You, if you're really going to ask, you know, put your faith in God, you can't also protect yourself. It's like the man who, who heard that if you prayed that the mountain moved, the mountain would move. So he prayed that the mountain move, and the next morning he went and it was still there, and he immediately said, I knew you'd still be there. Well, that wasn't really a prayer with belief. That doesn't have the power behind it. You know, just speaking of that, that's one of the, I'm going to just take the opportunity to digress and talk about tithing for a moment. You know, that's one of the, one of the very strong reasons we are constantly urging people, semi-successfully, to tithe, and to tithe the full 10% of their income, no matter what your income is, no matter whether you think that 10% is going to make it so you can't pay your bills. Because sooner or later, we have to have the courage to say, if I really believe that God's going to take care of me, in some small way, I've got to try that. And it's really not appropriate for us to just walk out of everything and walk out on the street and just don't work anymore and expect God to you know, put loaves of bread into our hand, hands like he did to the hermits in the wilderness. But uh, that's too much because that's presumptuous. We are, we are creating tension because we are moving too far beyond our capabilities. That's one of the things that Swami says in here in the last chapter so beautifully. We have to keep our desires within our capabilities to fulfill them. Isn't that, it was just so perfectly expressed. And also we have to keep our faith, our, our acts of faith, within the parameters of what we have that's not presumptuous. To stop working and expect money to fall in our hands is presumptuous. To tithe 10%, even if we think it's a little bit of a stretch, is our, I mean, a solid every dollar, 10 cents off every dollar, 10%, no cheating, just doing it, is really a very powerful way for us to, to begin to become independent of the, the miasma which surrounds us that we're doing this ourselves, and to affirm our independence from delusion and our commitment to divine freedom. It's the security battle versus the freedom battle. That's what we're looking at. And what he's saying here is that there's this security that we have, which is the security of numbers. As long as we're sort of living along the way everybody else is living, somehow we can feel like we can't be too far off because everybody agrees with me. But we can be extremely far off because it's necessary as devotees to go for freedom and not for security. And so he's trying to get us to understand in this particular chapter what real independence is and what it really means to, um, to do something different and why doing something different is really just exactly what we ought to do. He's, he's making this case for how the folly of the group consciousness how can we possibly think it a valid thing? I was thinking of this in a small way. One of the children that we know at the age of 10 or 11 um, went to visit a family. It's not in our community. It's another part of Ananda. 
She went to visit a family, and that family, they're raw foods people. And she spent three days there and came home utterly convinced that raw organic foods are the way to go. So now this child, and her, her parents are cooperating with her, now this child is on raw foods, raw organic foods, that's all. Totally, you know, just taking charge of her life at the age of whatever it is, 10 or 11, and this is what she's doing. Now, of course, there's this great anxiety, you know, she's a growing child, will it be okay? And, of course, there may be genuine concerns about calcium for her bones and various other things. But on the other hand, when someone was expressing concern, I said, well, what is she trading in? Now she's not going to go to Domino's Pizza anymore. She won't have any more bean burritos. You know, she won't be uh, having pasta at the Italian restaurants. Like, these are not, like, really nutritious foods. If we, if we look even... Uh, at a vegetarian diet, but especially a casual vegetarian, there's a whole lot of stuff in there that doesn't give you anything. And, but we're used to it. It feels safer to us because now that this child is raw foods, you can't take her anywhere. <laughs> you, know, you can't do any of the normal things that you do. I remember exactly that when I became a vegetarian. It, it, the biggest problem was my relatives because they just were at a loss. There were so many you know, family rituals based around things that were off the diet. It took a long time to persuade them, just go ahead, we'll manage. But also there was this great anxiety, now that we weren't eating dead animals anymore, that somehow <laughs> something terrible was going to happen to us. But why? That's, and that's exactly what Swami talks about here. People think that if you're doing something different, it must be dangerous. And then he gives us all the lists of all the follies that have come and then uh, they, cease, they cease to be follies because they weren't. They were just a new idea. There's another um, aspect to this which is a very important thing, which is not when he was talking about Hegel and his rationalism and trying to just reduce everything to these very reasonable and logical things. It doesn't take into account the role of superconsciousness in the creation of new ideas. It doesn't take into account the possibility of divine inspiration. It doesn't take into account the sort of um, upward progress of consciousness, whether the planet itself is, is rising or whether individuals uh, uh, achieve new levels of reality and new things happen. And, and that's what, uh, when, he, when Swami was talking about using America the American Revolution and the creation of the American system, he, he puts out, is often represented as this thesis, antithesis, and synthesis. But Swami takes that thought apart. You know, it's so gratifying for me on one level to read all of this. I, went, I did one year of college, and I went to Stanford, which is, of course, a prestigious university. I related not at all to any of it, really, because it just didn't work for me at all. I'd sort of held on. It's not that I was going to drop out of high school, but I'd kind of held on to, to my final judgment on whether any conventional stream of life had anything to offer me until I got to Stanford because I figured this is a big, famous university and um, they should be able to offer me something. Um, as Swami says about his own college years, he was not entirely receptive himself so it's possible that, that people could have taught him more than he received from them. So I would certainly allow that there's a possibility that if I'd been just a teeny-weeny bit more receptive, I might have learned a teeny-weeny bit more. But as a, what actually happened was they, they just 
the just profound irrelevancy of everything that was being taught to me. And some of it I find in this book, you know, some of the deeply irrelevant things that were taught to me. I mentioned Plato's Republic, which I was mesmerized by the name Plato, but I found the document itself so boring that I didn't even read it. And um, I've since learned that um, I think I must have been a scholar a lot of lifetimes, and I absolutely hated it. Because now, nothing will put me to sleep faster than going to a library. And I know that, you know, many people love libraries, but I just go into libraries and very, very quickly I fall asleep. I fall asleep instantly in a law library. Just like, (laughs) I had to go into a law library a couple of times, and just as soon as I got close to it, it was like a, a drug for me, and I just went unconscious almost right away. It was just like I just couldn't bear it. And so, admittedly, I have some of the same relationship to academia and um, scholarliness altogether. I just think I had some real bad experiences that I had to extricate myself from. But the, the fundamental feeling that I had when I was in college, which I expressed more than once, it wasn't just a feeling, it was an actual thought, which is, but that's stupid, you know, the things that were being said to me. I, I couldn't get into the game of it. I just couldn't get into the, just exactly what Swami writes, you know, just for the sake of argument, let's consider. But it is, there, I, couldn't, I couldn't go just for the sake of argument. It's like, this isn't true, this isn't relevant, this doesn't relate to human nature. This is just a mind game, you know, to use the vernacular of the times. And there was just this instinctive sense that this doesn't have anything to do with me. Now, of course, obviously, I was looking for something else, and it wasn't what they had to offer, and... I didn't want what they had to offer. There's many things that could be learned. But it's just what Swami's also really trying to get us to do with this whole book is that to to give us all the energy when we see that the emperor is not wearing any clothes to just be able to say, but he's not wearing any clothes. It really doesn't matter how many other people believe that he is. If he isn't, he isn't. And, And part of that, which I was starting to say, Master... Uh, Swami talks about the commonly held idea that the American system of government was an example of this interaction. Swami just says, not at all. And he, he says, Adams and Washington and Jefferson were brilliant, widely read men who drew from many sources and brought it all together, but what they created was new. Because it was a superconscious inspiration. And that's also really what we as devotees are always looking for. And that's really always what really shifts uh, a culture. I read a little comment that Swami made just this afternoon. He said, it's really not at all hard to shift the whole direction of society. He said, because most people are just living their lives, enjoying their children, making enough money to get along, taking care of themselves, and they're just not thinking about where the culture's going. And he pointed out how few people were, were actually communists in Russia. Like, you know, 5% of that huge population made the whole revolution and took over. Because most people just aren't involved. And it's not like, oh, therefore we should get involved. But it's also realizing that good ideas also can have a powerful influence. And that there's this, this force that's higher than just our rational mind, just sort of thinking things through. And it's this force of superconsciousness that really inspires people to do something else. And the key that we're looking for as devotees always is to be able to have enough independence of maya in order to be able to feel that intuition 
and then have enough courage to do it and to do it right. And that's where he talks about um, uh, not rejecting but building on things, not pride, not negativity, but a positive new direction that we're really committed to. Um, he said, "What well, he said, something else." Here. Oh, another thought that um, that Swami d- just hints on there, but he, when he talks about his new version, which is action, reaction, and interaction, that was the sort of new concepts he's trying to to put together. I would, I don't know if we'll still be alive or not, but it'll be very interesting to see over decades how many of these ideas actually become part of the uh, thinking of our times. I mean, we're talking about all these uh, icons of our culture whose ideas found, have found their way into the fabric of our culture. And Yogananda came to establish an entirely new way of looking at things. And you know, bits and pieces of what Master has done are already part of what we're doing. It'll be interesting to see how many of these phrases that Swami has coined you know, putting those self-realization ideas into action will be interesting to see how many come forward. But he was talking about the this new way of looking at it instead of it being, and again, this is the theme all the way through, instead of always seeing things in terms of competition and uh, uh, antagonism, and he goes through the whole discussion about the cloth merchants in India all working together in the same place and cooperating with each other and there's many different thoughts about that. But at one point, it was with Swami, and we were actually on a train uh, in Switzerland. And he was, Hunter and Audie Black were with us, and he was talking to them a lot about just a lot of different things. And he got very interested and talked at some length just about the simple concept of cooperation. And originally, he, his first book about communities was Cooperative Communities, How to Start Them and Why. And then people started telling him that the word cooperative had economic implications. You know, a cooperative was a particular kind of economic entity. So he was persuaded to change the word to intentional. But he was saying on this train, and I think he has gone back, he said, but he, he didn't like the word intentional because the word cooperative meant something else. And, and Swamiji is also always trying to find ways to take Master's essential teachings and translate them into principles. Because when they're principles, anybody can absorb them. When they're tenants of this particular master's church, then it's harder for people to take them. And, and uh, the teachings of Buddhism, the teachings of Christianity, um, have influenced society without their necessarily being called Christian. Just the ideas, um, the equality implied in Christianity, for example, has had a, a profound effect on the whole world. The ahimsa of Buddhism has had a huge effect on the world without it necessarily being called Buddhism. But see, he was talking about this word cooperation, and he was saying how central a concept it is, really, to almost everything that we do. And he was saying, he, he got particularly interested in the idea that cooperative was a good word for the kind of healing system that Master recommended. Cooperative healing. And he was talking about it from the point of view of the cooperation between the healing practitioner and the person that they're helping. In other words, it's not a passive relationship on the part of the patient, but it's a cooperation between the healing life force and the individual who needs that. It's a cooperation between God's will and my own personal destiny. 
And that he just went on for a very long time showing how this simple word really changes the whole dynamic of what we do. And certainly when applied to our, our, our country, and especially this uh, exaggerated materialism that places us in competition, and competition has become so much sort of the way we think we're supposed to be. I was uh, hearing a conversation in the locker room of the YMCA yesterday. Sometimes you just want to interrupt perfect strangers. Um, I didn't. It seemed unwise. After a while, they were, they were standing, you know, like right here because we were all at the same locker. So I wasn't eavesdropping. I was that I couldn't get away from it. I would have liked to have gotten away from it. This is, this is the picture as it gradually evolved. The mother of a three-and-a-half-year-old child was talking to this other woman, and the other woman, it turns out, is a swimming instructor. And the three-and-a-half-year-old child had been going to swimming lessons and hadn't really been doing all that well in the swimming lessons. Okay, And the swimming instructor was talking about the fact that, well, uh, as it happened, the three-and-a-half-year-old had been usually had private lessons, but had now been placed with a five-year-old, and she seemed to be spurred on by the competition created by the five-year-old. She wanted to, you know, she, she did better because she was competing with the five-year-old. And the swimming instructor was talking about how, you know, you can have them race together and it creates energy. Well, that's, I mean, inherently, you can sort of see that. There could be an interaction between the two children that could create more dynamic energy than the child by herself. But the swimming instructor also allowed how the child was three and a half and already was, quote, in school all day and had after-school activities. And one of the problems was the child was tired. And by the time it got to swimming lessons at the age of three and a half, it just quite didn't have it together to really give a damn, I think is what it really was. But maybe under the incentive of the other child, the child's will got engaged again. But, uh, let's see, what, what was I? I had a thought there about it. I know it was about cooperation, but that wasn't. <sighs> ah, that complete I thought one. I wanted to shake the parents because I wanted to say this child is three and a half. You know, what is it that we're trying to accomplish? I think that's more where I was trying to go with it. You know, that we're just, we're trying to build an incentive for people to to put out all this other energy instead of just actually asking the question, what is it we're really trying to do here? You know, it certainly was lack of cooperation with the child's own nature. This also goes to a later part of the book where you just have this uh, reality going on in our culture at this time, which is so insane. And Swami touches in such interesting ways, even to communicate with each other, we have to have times of silence. You know, otherwise we, we can never calm down enough to really relate to each other. And you have this, and you know how this is going on with this three-and-a-half-year-old child. It's like you have to provide them opportunities, you know, and I never learned to swim properly. I want my child. I thought, at three-and-a-half, you don't take swimming lessons. You go into the pool with your dad or with your mom or with your older brother, and you just splash around until you learn how to do it. You know, I, I watch these little kids in the Y, you know, going up and down, in these lanes, and I think this is not a natural behavior for a child to go up and down in these lanes. It's a natural behavior to be in the water, but it's not natural to go from end to end. It's natural to just be free. But we're raising up 
a whole generation of people, I mean a small, a small section of our country is doing it, but a whole, we're raising a whole reality of people that are all in this lemming-like hurry to get where? That's the question that Swami asked. Where is it that we're trying to go? I read another interesting statement today. Swami, this is just in the path. Swami said, the cornerstone of Master's um, um, commitment to spiritualize this culture was balanced education for the young. I mean, I've always thought of it as important, but it was interesting to have him say the cornerstone of it, or maybe said the foundation stone. But when, on a certain level, you, you realize that's true, uh, Swamiji once was commenting about the chaos of uh, marriage and relationships and family life in this country. And uh, he said to me at that time that uh, it really won't work out until everything... Let's see, how did he put it? What he put it, he said, everything that we presently think about marriage and relationships is wrong. <laughs> it was a very sweeping statement he's given to those. He said, it's all subconscious, is what he said. It's all just subconscious. It's not superconscious or even conscious for the most part. I don't think he included all of us, but he was just talking in a general sense. And then he said, it will never be worked out until people are brought up differently. In other words, it just can't be worked out until people are from a very young age, have a different understanding, first of all, of sexuality, and, and then of just sort of the nature of what they can expect as men and women. And you see the change happening. People are growing up differently. They're not necessarily growing up wise yet, but they are growing up differently. And so uh, a lot of these ideas that Swami's putting out, he's trying to say, he's trying to really plant seeds for people to begin, people of influence, to begin to really think differently. I mean, if all of our universities taught cooperation instead of competition, if all of our schools were based on cooperation instead of competition, think what a different world it would be. But in fact, think of the changes that have already taken place just in our short lifetimes. And none of that was really legislated, as I was saying the other day. It's not that it comes from the government down. It comes from individuals changing their consciousness. So Swamiji, in this whole chapter two, trying to get us to embrace this communitarian idea is also saying, look, if you really want to be socially responsible, then get in tune with something deeper. That's what it is to really do your part for this culture. That's why so often when people talk to us, as we have been recently, about politics or you know, how we're going to protect ourselves or uh, what about ecology and what about this, I say, I, you know, we're doing everything we can and we're doing a great deal to really be responsible about influencing this culture in the right direction, we're just doing it from the inside out. And that's where, at the very beginning of this book, Swamiji you know, was really emphasizing that just because the, the, the cosmology has shifted so you don't really know where the center is. You remember that was the first chapter of this book? He said, so much has happened that where we used to have these fixed uh, positions where we knew where things came from, that doesn't mean that there's no order here. It's just that it's, it's all shifted to, to Master's phrase, which is center everywhere. But above all, it, it's, it begins from inside. In that whole first chapter, he talked about how everything grows from the inside out. 
That's what it is. To, a natural reality grows from the inside out. It starts with a seed and it becomes a tree. It starts as an embryo and becomes a person. You know, it, whatever it is, it starts as a bud. It becomes a flower. It's always from the inside out. And so we're looking at our society with this feeling that something more and different could happen here. And he's talking about all these ways in which people have tried to impose something from the top. And he's saying, just start from the inside. So he, this whole chapter is about the right kind of independence and the right kind of understanding as an individual of how to relate um, to, to what we really um, believe and know is true. And he makes a very simple statement, which is uh, a very important. And it's also important because of the conversations we've been having about war and personal personal position and all of that. He says, personal integrity doesn't need to polarize you from any group. Because part of personal integrity is um, a a cooperative spirit. And even if you're not um, participating in what other people are doing, there's a great deal of difference between following your own star and judging other people for what they're doing. You know, it's the judgment and the rejection and the implied arrogance of it that creates the antagonism. It's not just the doing of it. Now, um, so, huh, does anybody have any questions? <laughs> well, I, I noticed that he deliberately doesn't um, refer to spiritual communities, but yet um, you know, the success of Ananda is because we do have that, that common goal of self-realization and that we're all disciples of Yogananda. And I've heard Swami say, and you say time and time again, that that is the reason why we've outlasted all these other communities. So can a community really then be successful without that common bond? Well, Swami speaks all the way through as the purpose of community is to develop the individual, though. And he does, you know, he doesn't mince words about the need for spiritual, eventually. He talks about the, uh, the fact that nothing really uplifts consciousness like a spiritual aspiration. And he talks about how communities have to be based on this personal commitment to become better. That is his premise all the way through. No, he says it indirectly because he didn't want people to reject it because it was too overtly spiritual. His way is to win them to every step of it and then to add that in at the end. So he really adds it in at the end of this book. Yeah. But he adds it in at the end because by that point, all the other premises are irrefutable. In fact, he himself says, looking back on his book, Cooperative Communities, I think even as it's written now, he said the difficulty with that book is he started with Yogananda. And that would sort of be a disciple's attitude, and from that point of view it was laudable. But he said, having started with Yogananda, everybody who couldn't go with him there uh, was finished as far as the book was concerned. And, and that's not really serving your guru because the guru's intention is to get people on board with this idea because Master didn't just talk about cooperative communities as being the lifestyle for his devotees. He talked about it as a social pattern for the future. And that's sort of... This whole book came out of um, Swami's... Let me think if I have this clear... Either Master wanted to write a pamphlet about communities or actually did write a pamphlet and nobody knows where it is now. I can't remember which one it was. 
But in some sense, there was this pamphlet that Master was or did write about communities, and Swami just had the thought, well, that's not here anymore, so let me write it. I mean, Master wrote to Henry Ford, trying to get Henry Ford to support his plan to make a community. He wrote a long proposal to Henry Ford. Um, It turns out Henry Ford was really quite a visionary in a lot of different things he did. He did a lot of experiments um, with uh, lifestyle and dietary things and work environments and uh, alternative fuels, just different ways of living. So Master thought perhaps he could get Henry Ford's attention on this idea. Now, he's not going to write it in such a way that it only reflects what Master's already committed to. He's going to have to write it in a way that Henry Ford would want. And I think it was Swami hearing all about that that made him think, well, well, I'll write it. I'll write the convincing argument for communities that Master never actually wrote himself. And so he writes it like this. But the end point of it is that all, the whole story here is about the upward movement of consciousness. And again, we have to ourselves be broad enough to recognize it when it's spoken to us and not feel that we have to put our labels on it for it to be said. But he, you know, he didn't write this book for devotees. Books he writes for devotees, he writes differently. But it is for devotees because, as I said at the beginning, we also have to be able to think clearly. And the principles here are ours as well. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It could just be um, misleading uh, to people, I think, in that, you know, because he, he talks about it like in higher ideals. Mm-hmm. And so, like, you know, we were talking about this last night, like, environmentalists could think, oh, that's the higher ideal. Or It's true. But he doesn't, but he, he repeatedly says, no external cause will do it. If there's a theme throughout this whole thing, it's that no external ideal is sufficient. The ideal must be an internal one, and it must be about personal development. Because, I mean, he tries to make that the incentive for everything we do. What is it that you're really seeking? And in this chapter, he spends so much energy trying to take us down from the thought that our happiness will come from excessive material success. That our happiness comes... And he, he talks about those cloth merchants in India, and I remember in that, our, the man who has been our tour guide... Okay. So let's take a break then while you have to switch it. I loved reading somewhere that someone remarked that gender is the first thing you notice about a person and the last thing you forget. It's such a nice way to put it because it isn't really who they are. It's just, just exactly that. Okay. I was about to tell a story about Sanjay. Does anybody have any comments or questions? Sort of been going like a train tonight. Um... Sanjay, the man who has led our, uh, has been the guide for our India tours and the, the travel agent for all the years that we were doing them, he's a very, very westernized Indian, uh, very comfortable in the West, in Europe. You know, he's, he's a Indian through and through, but he's, he's just, he doesn't have a lot of the apparent accoutrements of it, and his mind works in a very Western manner. So a natural thought would be, would you like to emigrate to the West? I mean, not that we were trying to arrange it for him, but just having a conversation. And his response, after working with many, many Americans, because most of his business is from America, he says he wouldn't move to America for anything in the world. (laughs) He said he likes Americans, it's the heart of his business, but he said, very simply, no matter how much you have, you people are never content. And it was just such a simple statement, and he's plenty materialistic himself, but it's just so different. They just marvel at the, at the uh, quantity that we live with. 
I noticed it the first time. I mean, believe me, ignorance is 50-50 east and west, but there are cultural things. Just the first time we went into what was a, really a, a, a home that was comparable in uh, income and so on to uh, the American homes that I normally frequent. It was neither a lot poorer nor a lot richer. It was just right in the middle. But there was so little in it by comparison to how much there is in an American home. And just a few things. And, and just the sheer amount of stuff. Uh, my uh, f- friends here that were the Indian family bringing their children to our school were just uh, amazed, uh, first of all, that American children had their own rooms. It was just like starting with that, that every child had their own room. And then that their individual room was full of stuff, and all the stuff in their room belonged to the child. They just, they just couldn't get their mind around why people would do that. You know, how could it possibly be good for the child to just be sit, sitting there in that room full of stuff that was theirs when they're seven years old? It was just, uh, you could see how vast is the cultural divide. And yet we've lived with all of this for so long, and I was talking about the three-and-a-half-year-old. This is the thought I was going to say. We've just become so concerned, really, about competition. That's really what that word comes down to, that the children have to have the right Start. They have to have all the right advantages. And I, I know I've shared with you all the mother that I held in my arms while she wept because she was, had made the decision to send her four-year-old to our school but was so afraid that that decision was going to mean that her child wasn't going to be able to get into Harvard. And, and I kid you not, it was a real experience. The mother was going to put the child in our school because she knew it was right, but her fear was so great that she was weeping over her fear. Now, first of all, the child is four. <laughs> Secondly, probably the best thing she could do for a child's education is put her in our school. But you can just see how just unspeakably twisted the whole thing has become. And it's very hard to extricate yourself because it is a rock rolling downhill, and that's where Swami's really sort of pushing this thought, let's just go and do something else and just make it a very different reality. There was something I wanted to say. Oh, and he was, he was also talking, Swami was talking about how, you know, the Indian cloth merchants are not thinking big. They're not just automatically, Swami talks about that in his own autobiography. When he talks about being in Romania and growing up in Romania, and Romania was a real backwater country. That was, of course, before it was taken over by communists and, and destroyed. But it was just a small backwater country. It didn't, it was very fertile. They produced a great deal of the food that fed a lot of Europe. But they just didn't have any pretensions of being really huge or important. And it, it partly it just the way it was, it fostered that small is beautiful. And Swamiji lived in this um, rather very isolated little community. It was interesting how much where he started his life is like what he, he then created later. It, it uh, was a community united by economic interests, by profession and by economic interests. There was the oil refinery... In, in, called Teliagin, and there was a little, like a, a sort of like a fenced enclave next to it, which is where all the people, Americans and English mostly, who were associated with that oil refinery lived, and then there was the rest of Romania around them, and they were all ESO, Standard Oil employees, and they just had their own little culture within the greater culture. They weren't um, standoffish to the other culture, but because they were American and English, they preserved that reality there. But at the same time, 
they were in the middle of Romania. And there wasn't television. Television hadn't been invented. There was very little radio. There were only occasional movies. So there was no mass uh, infusion of the popular cultures from the countries they'd come from. And so they, they were able to just live in a much less... Well, all times were different than this is the 30s and the 40s. It, it just was a different feeling about everything there. Actually, even the late 20s, part of it. But Swamiji said for the children and especially because he was the oldest child and, uh, and there were only um, eight or nine children in the whole conclave and he was the oldest child and they were receptive to him so he influenced the environment a lot. And so the environment went toward imaginative games, cooperative games, um, just creative rather than um, standardized. And there was just a spirit to the group which was reflective of his personality and of their karma. But then sometimes, especially as he got a little older, children would come, especially from America, and as he writes in there, he said he was so puzzled by this attitude that American children had because he said they were so into being big shots, as he put it. And he just couldn't figure out what was so important about being a big shot. And... uh, He said it was as if the children themselves were impatient with being children and were just anxious to be big people right away. Um, But he he talked about it being a quality of America because America is so big and is so powerful that we just get this mindset that more is better, bigger is better, and that we always have to think big about everything that we do. And so, so many people in their lives ruin what they do by trying to make it too big, businessmen or uh we just, we're just not content with something comfortable. Now, on one hand, you want to be ambitious, but sometimes it was just, we feel compelled. I, I read, recall reading in the paper, and I don't remember why this man was being written up in the paper, but he and his wife in this area ran a small machine shop, and uh, it was sort of like, he was so successful, why didn't he expand? He said, because it works, just like it is. <laughs> you know, it's just very comfortable. It's provides us a good living, and it gives us time for something else. Why, why would we go on from here? And uh, I recall reading Mr. Hershey, who set up you know, Hershey, Pennsylvania, and all of that. He experimented. I, it was, I think it might have been during the Depression. I, I think I have this story correctly. But in order to not fire people, he just cut everybody's hours back a little bit in order to keep, to not put people out on the street. Everybody worked a little less, and then everybody got to keep working. But he also experimented. It was either Hershey or Ford. I can't remember which one. But they determined that a six-hour workday was the ideal workday because, because you don't get more work done in eight. You actually get more work done in six. And as he said, it leaves time for education, family, and religion. Right. And in other words, balance. But step by step, our culture has just become completely out of its mind. You know, there's just no, there's no other word for it except completely out of its mind. And what Swami is encouraging here, he talks about, I mean, these are you know, very simple ideas, but this is how it works. To understand anything, he says, you first have to understand yourself. And so you, you have, and to understand yourself, you have to have time to understand yourself. You have to have quiet, you have to have solitude. But then he also says, to understand yourself, you also have to interact with others. 
because most of us learn a lot about ourselves through our interactions with others, don't we? Because we discover our true feelings, we discover our limitations, our bad attitudes, or we see ourselves mirrored. We understand our own behavior by looking at someone else's behavior and somehow it clues us in to something that's happening with us. I mean, all of that is true. But he also says in order to relate to others, to really communicate and not just be superficial, you have to have time. You have to have quiet and you have to have time. But what is the last thing that we have in our culture? And so we're not able to understand ourselves. We're not able to understand other people. We're not able to understand what we're really doing. And there's just this thought that if I just keep doing this, and Swami puts it so well, he said, people think that at some point in this whole process I'll get happy. You know, maybe it's when I finally finish my job and I get to retire. But, you know, those are true thoughts even for devotees. When I was reading that, I was started thinking to myself, that we have to be careful not to fall into exactly the same trap. I'm going to do all this work, I'm going to do this meditation, I'm going to serve this project, and then I'll be happy. I, I was uh, reflecting that uh, after we went through, Ananda went through the whole cycle, especially of the Bertolucci trial on top of the SRF trial, and you know, 97, 98, 90, right in there, which were very, very difficult times in the sense of... Uh, it wasn't fun. It just was, we were having to deal with a lot that was icky and just and dealing with really icky people and we couldn't extricate ourselves from them. Usually when you're in the company of such icky people, you just excuse yourself. But when they're your jailers, you know, you're stuck. We were always grateful that we could go home and sleep in our own homes instead of being put in prison. That's how we would cheer each other up. You know, <laughs> if, this, if, if we were being persecuted by fellow religionists with more power than us, we would have been in prison. That's what happened to us in previous lifetimes. So merely to be trapped in the legal system is really quite minor compared to being thrown into a dungeon. So we'd cheer each other up with that. But nonetheless, it was karmically a very trying time. And when it was over, um, we all suffered from a little bit of post-traumatic stress syndrome, I think. But, but also, I myself suffered from something more subtle, which is I was just waiting to get happy again. And I kept waiting to get happy. You know, it's sort of like I had been able to endure, and we actually laughed a lot, but it just wasn't a happy time. Swami was, um, you know, he was having to put out a lot of force, and so he wasn't as light especially during that last few months, as he had been. I just kept waiting to get happy. And I waited, and I waited, and I waited, and I waited. And then it occurred to me that sort of like I'd used up my incarnation's quota of automatic happiness. (laughs) And that if there was going to be any more happiness, I was just going to have to decide to be happy. You know, just as simple as that, just to decide to be happy. And I saw that most people don't. Most people just wait to become happy. And, and it has to be just a deliberate decision. Now, we have to think about what we're doing to promote our own happiness. Because Swami says something here that's so interesting. He says it in two places. He says, uh, earlier, I, just, I copied it out as a note. He says, um, you want to help society in the sort of says, well, what about feeding? What about going to a soup kitchen and helping out there? 
Like that's a worthwhile way that you can be responsible. And then Swami just says, is that the best use of your energy? It was a very interesting question. Now he's not saying that nobody should feel socially responsible, but he's writing for, for deeply thoughtful people here and not for people who are just going to go with their own impulses. He says, if you get a paralyzed person finally to be able to walk well enough to re-enter the useless fray, really what good have you done? Do you know what I mean? If you just, if somebody, that I, I remember years ago there was some movie that Jyoti saw and he came back and he said, you know, a shudra, as I've mentioned, is the lowest level of, of spiritual development consciousness and just completely inert. And a Vaisha at least is active enough to be selfish. <clears throat> so Jyotish came back and said about this particular movie that it was the touching story of a shudra becoming a Vaisha. <laughs> and there was another really awful movie that somebody imposed upon Swami, which he has been teasing about ever since. And it was about a, a, a woman who was just completely out of her mind, who gradually became less crazy. So we said it was a, a touching story of a subnormal person becoming almost normal. <laughs> you know, it's just like, it's true that it's nice for shujas to become vaishas. It's also true of subnormal people can become normal. But you also want to ask yourself, is there, is, is there anything more I can do? Swamiji himself, when, he, um, when his cousin wrote to him when he was in college, his cousin spoke of wanting to be a doctor to help sick people become well. Swami said, well, you know, my real interest is in helping well people become super well. And now part of that, sort of part of Swami's emphasis at this point, and this is how this book is all interwoven threads, is back a couple of chapters ago when he was talking is how does real change take place? It doesn't take place from the mob kind of all getting together. It doesn't get, take place from just a bunch of ordinary people just somehow accidentally hitting on something. It's from people who really apply their consciousness in a creative way, having a superconscious inspiration and then having the will, the determination, and the energy to carry that out, especially spiritual people. Because that's how the world has been shifted always. It's from the highest level. That's one of the things, again, Swami writes in the path about why he wanted to become a devotee and not an artist. He thought to himself that even Shakespeare really did not shift society like religion does. He didn't, Swami didn't want to go toward religion. He didn't like religion. But he gradually had to admit that nothing shifted culture and consciousness like spiritual principles do. So Swami's really trying to say to us, look, even in the name of being socially responsible, what you really need to think about is, is not merely what you could do, but what is the... Uh, what is the best use of your energy? And then he, he hits the same idea again later when he talks about people in the name of compassion. And, you know, all of these thoughts influence us. Like, I feel like in order to be a responsible citizen, I have to worry about the starving children. I remember this, is, Swami writes in there, he said, when his mother would say, eat, finish your dinner, they're starving in China. Well, then send them the remains of my dinner. It just didn't convince him at all that he should eat when he wasn't hungry. I remember someone had a cup, big coffee cup, that said, drink your coffee, people are sleeping in India. <laughs> a wonderful variation on the theme. <laughs> But uh, but Swami was just approaching this idea that if we 
For example, pull away and form a small community, and we no longer worry about the fact that they're starving in China, that somehow we're not being responsible. And so he, he tries to express that it's, it's true that you want to be compassionate, but the word he uses, he said, it's, it's good to care, but it's better to care in a way that's useful. It's a very interesting phrase. And I remember in that context um, a very important principle of Ananda, even though it's, uh, Swami doesn't always mention it, but it's really one of our handful of dictums that really guides our lives. Where there is dharma, there is victory. People are more important than things. And really the third one is um, you've got to be practical in your idealism. And that was something that Master said to Swami at a certain point in his own. He was trying to, that was when he addressed the group of uh, Beverly Hills doctors and psychiatrists. Um, He was talking to a Beverly Hills psychiatrist. And he was trying to persuade him about the spiritual path by telling him about the miracles that Master had performed. And it did not persuade the man. And later, Master's somewhat enigmatic answer, but you can see the connection. He said, you've just got to be more practical in your idealism. You have this idea that you know, miracles are so wonderful and that you want to convert everyone to this, but that was not a practical thing to say to that man. It really wasn't going to work. And so a lot of times the, the way out of a conundrum is not to ask, oh, but what about those poor starving people? What are we going to do for them? You have to ask, what is practical? And this goes back again earlier in the book. We have to ask the question, what will really work? And all of us, I've been in four discussions in the last two weeks, long discussions, about this question of what do we do about the possibility of the United States going to war. And it's, it's a very, you know, it's a very uh, important question that we ask. We care about it a lot, but we also have to care usefully. And we have to care practically. And so Swami just talks about how, um, obviously, the whole premise of this is when you as an individual have the right consciousness, then everything is possible. But if you don't, it's, it's not what we think we're doing, it's what we're actually doing that affects everything. And he, as he puts it, you know, peace spreads from one contented person to another. It was a very, just a very interested way, interesting way to put it. And I had this interesting idea because we've, many of you sitting here, not all of you have been part of some of these discussions, that I sort of was coming to an understanding of how we combine this sense of loyalty to our country, to America particularly, I don't even mean our country, but to America at this time. Loyalty to America is based to a very large extent, not merely because we're born here, but because of the faith Master put in America and the role that Master assigned to America in the great scheme of things. And we'll just accept that as as a valid and true premise. That, that America has a Dwapara Yuga destiny. I recently, just today, found something that Peggy Bott had sent us for Christmas. I don't know if it was this year or another year. It was a little um, statement by Master saying, he, it was, he wrote it um, in the 50s, in 51. He said, don't worry, even if there's a third world war, America has very good karma and America will always triumph. I mean, it's just a straight, no matter what happens, America will triumph. In other words, as someone put it rather colloquially, Master said, stick with America. Just because something is really going on here. And all of us, as Master's children, born into this country, have been born here because we are part of this Dwapara Yuga wave. And Swami writes in, 
a place called Ananda, that a great many of us were really not Westerners. Our, our orientation is Oriental. We're, we're really Indians and we're just here. We're here on a job. We're on a job assignment, sort of like being in the army, which is, it is like being in the army. We were assigned to help create this balance between East and West. And our whole orientation toward life is more in tune with the Indian way of being, or the, at least the Oriental way of being, but we have a job to do in the West at this time. And that job is really to, to establish in America um, this beachhead of self-realization, which in time will then go out and influence the whole world. I have to wait a minute, because everybody will want to know. This uh, responsibility um, to be Americans right now. And I was beginning to realize that it's not necessarily that America as a country is going to keep clear about what it's doing. But nonetheless, our loyalty is to stick with it and, and just sort of stay here and keep going on with the right consciousness no matter what is going on on other levels. And, and not necessarily even to concern ourselves. This is, what, this is what I've been trying to say for weeks on this. We don't have to concern ourselves with all those things that America is doing because we are um, the solution to all of that. You see? What we're doing is the antidote to, to war or peace. And whether they go to war or not, the consciousness that is even pushing them toward it, that's either going to cause them to do it or not do it, that consciousness is the problem. And whether they actually attack Iraq or don't attack Iraq or any of those things, it almost doesn't make any difference because the whole consciousness is in place and that's the problem. The details are unimportant. And for us, we are establishing ourselves as the, um, the antidote to that consciousness. The, so, the real solution to that consciousness is small communities and self-realization. Because what's happened is we've just gotten so committed to security over freedom. We've gotten so committed to materialism. We've gotten so confused about what real religion is that the country is all mixed up. It's corrupt. And so when people say, but it's corrupt, well, yeah, it's corrupt. Of course it's corrupt. Whether there's actually a conspiracy theory going on or not, the, the true heart of what is America has been corrupted. And it, but it's going to be fixed because it's going to be fixed by self-realization, not just by Yogananda's path, but by self-realization. So as we dedicate ourselves to creating this consciousness, it's a more useful thing for us to do than to carry placards about war. Because pl carrying placards about war, that's just a symptom. We're working here at the cause. Do you see? And that's what makes our action a complete answer to that. And that's why it really hardly matters what it does. Because we've got to undo the consciousness. Because if it's not this war, it'll just be another one. You know, if it's not that terrorist attack, it'll just be another one. If it's not this earthquake or that famine or this crop failure, it'll just be another one. It's all just dissonance. And so we can think, what is the most useful thing I can do? Because I really care. I care about the Iraqis being killed. I don't want the Iraqis to be killed by my country. I've got to do something to fix my country. But then the loyalty comes in, in that we've got to stick with it. You know, okay, this is, we were touching on this a little bit last night. Okay, so America's a little confused right now. It's just like a friend that's in trouble. 
but you know, but this is my loyalty. I have to stay with this. I have to stay with America and just keep trying to do what's really going to help. And if it's going to have to run this little story, I have to work all the harder to get this other consciousness going, not just uh, for our sake here, but really for the whole planet. Because the one thing that has happened is that American culture is world culture. I realized that when we were in Costa Rica and I was just so depressed by all the music that they were assaulting me with and it was just horrible American music with Spanish words. Just horrible. And But then I realized all of a sudden that Master said that you know America has the energy that's the future and already we're exporting our culture. We're just exporting the worst of our culture. But the channels are open. You know, the world is being united under the umbrella of American culture. And so as American culture writes itself, then the umbrellas there already just in the same way that the english english is becoming the world language master you know suggested that english would be the world language he was very distressed when india went with hindi instead of english he thought they are, but but really english is the world language and that's because the british went out and colonized everywhere so that action was not the right action but the result of that was serving a much bigger divine purpose interesting Master wrote in an article I was reading, just one last thought. He said the purpose of World War II was to free up a lot of uh, developing countries. And that uh, that's not what it appeared to be, but that was the net result of it. It just changed the whole way the international structure worked. So a lot of times we don't know what's happening. What were you going to say, Steve? Just, excuse me, in relation to the, the comments about you know, offering those who oppose the war something to hold on to. You know, it's just something to believe in. Would it, could it not also be helpful to have a larger, be able to expand one's vision of what is behind, let's say, the move to, to this war on the part of this government, that perhaps there is a higher consciousness in place and it's actually a kind of a putting energy into the, the principles upon which this culture is based? And that there is there is that higher consciousness, right? Because of freedom for all, liberty, these principles upon which the country was founded. Because what I'm finding in, among many people who oppose the war is a, is a very deep cynicism that it couldn't possibly be that it must be this, this, and this. Right. But I don't know. To me, again, I've said this many times. I just, as a devotee, I don't want to even go there. I don't want to argue it politically. But I think spiritually. You can argue it spiritually spiritual if people are open. Principles. Yeah, you can. You, if people are receptive, you can say many things. I'm actually talking about where we put our energy. And, and I'm saying that from this chapter, he said two things. Is that the best use of your energy? And yes, it's good to care, but you've got to care in a useful way. Okay, what is the most useful thing we can do with our caring about things? This is, again, Swamiji trying to help people find a way to separate themselves out from the mainstream and feel that they're not being irresponsible. Now, that may not necessarily be a a thought for everyone or people in this room, but it's a very real thought. You know, you have this sense that um, I don't want to be selfish. And people often accuse people who become spiritual and then are not politically active, or even worse, that drop out of, you know, waste their education and go to a community, don't live up to their potential and go do this. I mean, all those things are very real accusations that can even come into your own mind as a devotee. And he's just really trying to 
have us embrace the understanding that this is the most useful thing I can do. This, this is a direct antidote to everything that um, causes people to suffer. And if we can just raise that, that causes them to go to war, this is going to the cause of it. It's not treating the symptoms, it's going to the cause. Get them to not attack in one place, they're just going to attack in another until the consciousness shifts. And consciousness can shift, and that's where Swami's statement, it's a, a few dedicated people can change the course of history because most people don't focus, they just live. And so a few people with real determination can change everything. And you know, there's all the examples of that. So anyway, that was somehow the, all, those, all these conversations of this last week finally came together in my mind with this thought because I've been flailing about in the dark a little bit on it. Are you content, Steve, or are you going to say something else? Um, <laughs> Pardon me? Neither? No, I'm, I'm not, well, I'm, I'm content in life, but on this point, <laughs> I, I probably have more things that I would say, but not... Not at 9.15. Let's just say not at 9.15. Let's just say I don't want to hear them at 9.15. You can say them them at 7.30 next week. (laughs) At 7.30 I'll hear them, but not at 9.15. Does anything else have anything easier to talk about? The essence of what you're saying is the center uh, everywhere. It's just compressed nowhere. That's what the book is saying, and it's what you're saying is what we're trying to do. When that happens, we won't be flying out Mm -hmm. to all the other countries. It's their fault this right. it's, it's interesting how it all comes together, how the book and how, how it really is real, levens, real lessons for devotees. Because, you know, I'm thinking this book is you know, not exactly written for, quote, devotees, and then I realize it's the, we've been having for four, four times, we've spent hours on this exact discussion, and it's answered right here, because that is the question that's been asked. What, what is a social, socially responsible thing for a devotee to do? And I've intuitively known the answer, but I haven't been able to put a logical structure on it. Not well enough yet. Okay, any other comments? Okay, we's done. Thank you. You know, I have to warn you, because I counted pages, next week is 13 pages, which is the longest chapter we've read yet, but the one after that is 26 pages of the manuscript. So you might want to get a head start.